0: Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Welcome. I think this is the eye room, the uh, ophthalmology optometry sort of tract. Um, So welcome. And um, my name is Peter Blackburn. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk. I got to talk in St. Augustine a couple of years ago, the last time we met, um, which uh, seems like a long, long time ago um, as to what we've been through since, since then. Um, but so today um, one caveat I never really know this is such an interesting um, group because it's such a mixture of people Um, so there's some eye stuff in here and some general medical stuff and then some spiritual stuff because I just don't know how to handle that completely so um, I think there's a little bit for everybody it's a compilation of talks and you'll probably see the division Um, in there. And so we're talking about small things that have a large effect. That's the theme sort of for the the next hour or so. So maybe we can say a word of prayer before we get started. Father, I just thank you so much. Um, Over the last couple of weeks, as um, I've done some study and some preparation, I thank you for the message that you gave me. And I pray that um, you might give me the ability to communicate that message Um, in a way that uh, that is communicated and and what you meant to say to everybody. And I thank you for doing that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I work at the University of Kentucky. I'm an ophthalmologist there um, in Lexington. And this is the view from my office. And so that's the hospital. Um, I've been there since 2004, Um, did training in Colorado, um, did a little bit of time at Kettering. Somehow I miss Loma Linda and I just don't know how that happened, but I did somehow. Um, So i trained did my last bit of my fellowship here at at UK and have worked there ever since. So so to get started, these are my siblings, um, my sister and my brother Craig. And um, Craig is about 10 years older than me. And um, so this is at a wedding a few weeks ago in Colorado. And um, when he was about 20 and I was about 10, he was home from college and um, really kind of wasn't feeling very well, um, sort of lethargic and tired, and, and just not doing great. Well, my mom makes this amazing cake that is sort of a combination between chocolate cake and brownies, and it's kind of this fudgy thing, and we love it. It's not very good for you at all, um, at all. And so she, one weekend she made this for me and my brother. And we kind of ate the whole thing in a very short period of time. Well, later that night, um, my brother just, he kind of got worse. And so he was just really, really tired. And so my mom would wake him up, and he would stay awake for about a minute, and then he would just fall back asleep. My mom's a nurse, and so she knew something wasn't right. And so we went to the emergency room, and it turned out that his blood sugar was about 800. And so he was in DKA. And so, um, he was in the ICU for a few days and it was my and our family's first introduction to diabetes. And so, um, our life kind of changed after that. And so he was defined at that point as a type one diabetic. Um, now he probably would be a tweener between type one and type two, but, um, in about 1980, that's what he was, was a type one diabetic. And so, um, So our life kind of changed at that point in in my life, and it kind of got me interested in diabetes. Well, fast forward about 10 or 15 years, or interested in medicine. Um, Fast forward about 10 or 15 years, and um, suddenly he's had the disease for 15 years, and I was in my mid-20s, and interested in medicine, and and actually in in medical school, and he started having some eye complaints. So he'd see these floaters and sort of blurred vision, missing part of his vision. and so I got to go to the eye doctor with him and it turns out that he had something called proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Um, he had had sort of marginal control. He's a very brittle diabetic, really hard to control his sugars. And so he had struggled with that. And so his disease progressed relatively quickly. And so, um, so after going to the ophthalmologist, we then went to the retina doctor and I got to sit in on laser for him getting PRP laser, or print panretinal photocoagulation, which is one of the ways that we treat that. Um, And I actually, it's a funny, there's lots of funny stories from this, but my family, we have this thing where we pass out at the smallest thing, and so my job was to put my hand on my brother's head behind the laser and hold him in place (laughs) in case he passed out. Dr. Moo Young was a wonderful retina doctor in in Denver at the time, took great care of my, my brother. Um, but that was my job. And so that's kind of got me interested in ophthalmology and in retina in particular. And so that's kind of what we're going to talk today about. So, um, my other love for ophthalmology is you actually get to see pathophysiology. And so, you know, in, in other fields, you kind of study about it. And you learn about all these mechanisms, these things that happen, and then you can get lab values and you can play with medicines and see what happens. But in ophthalmology and optometry, you get to actually see pathophysiology, and I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. Um, So we're going to spend just a a little bit about on on blood as we kind of introduce the the, the eye part of this talk. Um, So blood in the Bible sort of represents life. Um, And... um, you know the wages of sin is death, and for forgiveness we have to have the spilling of blood. So blood represents life, and we have this whole sacrificial system that represents Jesus giving His blood for us for for the forgiveness of our sins. Well, today we're going to actually talk about blood and real blood, and not symbolically but actual blood. So when I gave this talk at church, I actually asked them this, and I won't do that to you because I'm assuming everybody has a little bit of of medical knowledge. But blood contains all sorts of things, right? Contains, it's mostly water, but it contains enzymes and cells and white blood cells and red blood cells and all sorts of stuff. Um, And it also contains glucose. And glucose is, every cell needs it. You have to have energy for cells to survive. One of the other thing that blood contains is the regulatory hormone, insulin. We've talked about a little bit about that already, but insulin helps us to control our blood glucose level. And so there's different ways that you can measure um, uh, uh, glucose, you can take just a a blood glucose level, whether it be fasting or just random and see what it is, or you can check something called a hemoglobin A1C, which is glycosylated hemoglobin. And so that gives you an average of what someone's blood glucose is for the last three months. And so, um, and so, it's very helpful in seeing over the long term how patients are controlling their blood sugars. So, a normal hemoglobin A1c is less than 5.7. A pre-diabetic or suggested of diabetes is between 5.7 and 6.4. And a diabetic is a hemoglobin A1c of greater than 6.5. So, relatively small differences in that number can mean that you're a diabetic or you're not a diabetic. Really small differences, but then, the result of those differences, if you, have a di- if you have diabetes or carry that diagnosis, you can have these big, huge consequences from that. And so I asked my church, I said, okay, so what are some of the complications of, um, of diabetes? Well, we kind of know them, right? Heart disease, kidney disease, peripheral neuropathy, and eye disease. And so, um, and so those are some of the things. So those are big organ systems that can take a hit, from having such a a small number change. So, um, why does an elevated sugar level cause diabetic retinopathy, which is the thing that that, um, happens when you have, in the eyes, when you have diabetes. So this is a really busy slide. So don't get nervous about it, because we're not gonna really talk about the details of this. But suffice to say, hyperglycemia, or elevated blood glucose levels, Um, give you these elevated um, growth factors. The bad actor in this is VEGF, or vasoendothelial growth factor. And that's what gets elevated in the eyes when people have diabetes. Now that happens from a lot of different ways. And you can see some of the the, um, mediators that make that happen at the bottom of the screen. We're not really gonna talk about those individually, but just know that VEGF is the bad thing that happens here. And it happens because the small blood vessels, the really small capillaries in your eye shut down and they quit carrying blood. And so that causes all of these elevated levels of VEGF and it has a whole cascade uh, of different things. But two of the main things, so I don't have a pointer here, I don't think, but this slide and this slide, what they tell you is that um, when you have elevated uh, glucose and the VEGF level is elevated, the, the blood, retina brain, the blood retina barrier, or the blood brain barrier, because the retina is really part of the brain, breaks down. And so you get leakiness. So there's fluid that leaks out into the retina from the normal blood vessels. And when a the retina is swollen, it doesn't work very well. So that's diabetic macular edema. The other thing that can happen is that you can get these um, abnormal blood vessels that can grow on the retina. And that really sounds like a good idea when somebody, when their retina isn't getting very much blood, but it's not. It has all sorts of pathologic effects when that happens. So we're gonna kind of leave that slide, but this is the basics um, biochemically of what happens in the retina that causes diabetic retinopathy. So the circulation of the eye. So I guess before we go on to this, let me say the reason that it's so important for the eye to get blood is that the retina is one of the most um, biochemically active cells in the body. There's over 130, 130 million um, photoreceptors that make up the retina in each eye. And so about 120 million of those are rods and about six million of those are cones. But if those don't get, so every night, we talked about a little bit, I think I heard this morning um, at some point today, talking about how important it was to get rest. Um, for the eye and what happens in your circadian rhythms when you go to bed at night is your retina kind of regenerates itself. All the rods and the cones produce new parts of those photoreceptors and then the next day they get used again when we see light or see different objects and those parts of the rods and cones turn that into electrical impulses which then go out through the visual centers to the brain and that's what we call vision. And so the retina has to do that every night it has to have good blood supply or it can't survive. So the blood supply is really important. Um, when your internal carotid artery comes up, the first branch of that is the um, central retinal artery. It comes off of that and goes into the eye. And then there's two other arteries that come off of that called the posterior ciliary arteries. And so the retina actually has dual blood supply. It's kind of a retina s- blood supply sandwich, if you will. And so. The outer blood supply, this one, is from the posterior ciliary arteries, and the ones on the inner part of the retina are from the central retinal artery. And so the, all the photoreceptors kind of live in here. And you can actually divide out which part of those layers get blood from which from, from different parts. So the ciliary arteries kind of go up to this line, out to the outer plexiform layer. We asked the residents, this is a classic qu- quiz question, can you name all 10 or 11 um, layers of the retina, and they get all nervous and being able to say them, um, but that's the breakdown of where the the, the layers kind of separate themselves. So. That's kind of the anatomy behind all of this. Let me show you some pictures that kind of make it more real. And so this is a normal looking retina. Um, So the optic nerve here, the normal blood vessels that supply arteries and veins that supply the retina, the macula lives right here. This is where all the cones live. And that's what we use for reading vision or to do really small things. So when this gets messed up or damaged, we can't read very well. We can't see small things very well. And so this is what normal looks like and this is what abnormal looks like. This is what medical school is all about, being able to differentiate normal from abnormal. So this is abnormal, and so what we see here, all these little dots, this is these dots of blood, those are all the background diabetic retinopathy. Those are the very early changes. Um, this, these hard exudates that have come into the macula, this is macular edema. So that's the most common way that people lose vision from diabetes. And then there's some blood that's kind of pooling down here. People would interpret this as floaters or dark floaters in their vision. And these little guys, these little squiggly lines, they're not supposed to be there. That's neovascularization, so these abnormal blood vessels that can grow on the optic nerve. So this is sort of the pathology of diabetic retinopathy. And what there's one further picture that I'll show you here in a bit, but this is something called a fluorescein angiogram. Um, And this is normal. So these are all the arteries and veins that are lighting up. This is what it's supposed to look like with normal circulation. This is, let's see, come on. There we go. Um, so this is an abnormal fluorescein angiogram. And what we see here, this, all this dark area here is where that choroidal blood supply has dropped out um, because of diabetes. And so this is really a bad thing because when that happens, um, you start to see these abnormal blood vessels starting to grow and we can see that here and there. And then all these little white dots, these are all the leaky parts where all those, um, The normal blood vessels have gotten leaky from those pericytes dropping out, and so this leaks um, fluid into the retina. So let's see. And so this is the really very end stage of diabetic retinopathy. This is a tractional retinal detachment from all of this scar tissue that's grown on the retina, and it's pulling on the retina and basically pulling it off the back wall of the eye. And this is why people go completely blind, like stone-cold blind. They can't see anything. And so this requires surgery to fix this. Everything else we've talked about can maybe have some more mild um, treatment where we don't have to do surgery, but some, do some different treatment. So these are those abnormal blood vessels that are growing up there. Okay, so let's see. We talked about that. So for the eye people in the room, we're going to get... Just I'm gonna try not to be too wonky and too geeky about this, but we're gonna talk about a couple of studies that show us how to treat macular edema. Since that's the biggest cause of people losing vision from diabetes, how do we treat that and what's the rationale behind that? These are a couple of the modalities that we use to diagnose macular edema. This is something called an an OCT or an ocular coherence tomogram or tomography. And what we see here is these swollen retina. This is subretinal fluid that's under the retina. This is some intraretinal fluid. All of that is not supposed to be there. And people, if that's there for a long time, they don't see very well. They, their vision slowly goes away. Um, this is an angiogram um, where there's leakage uh, into the retina that causes that. So, different ways that we can diagnose this. This is something called an OCTA or um, a non invasive angiogram, if you will. This is really cool technology. Um, this is why I love ophthalmology, is it's because it's kind of geeky and all of this stuff, but you don't have to inject any dye to see this image, and yet it shows us ischemia, and so this is just a picture of the eye, but it shows us how the blood vessel supply is to the retina, um, and just another example of ischemia. So let's see, where are we at? Okay, so... I want to talk just about a couple of studies on basically on how we treat this. So, DRCR is a group of of specialists across the country that sort of organized themselves to do studies over the last 15 years or so, and that stands for um, the diabetic. uh, Hang on, where is that? We got to find it. Diabetic Retina Control Group. And so this is basically a, a framework of how we do studies um, to how we treat it was designed for diabetes, but um, we use it for other things now. Um, and so they first started studying diabetes and how it affects vision. And the first thing that they sort of tackled was, um, how do we know when to treat mild amount of edema with people that really see very well? So someone comes in with a lot of edema, but they're still seeing 2020 or 2025. Do we treat those people or not? And the answer is most of the time we really shouldn't because if we jump in and start doing these injections that we do for people, then um, it really doesn't affect their outcome at all. And so most, most retina doctors, ophthalmologists, won't treat those folks. So we'll just kind of watch it, maybe see them every two or three months and see how they're doing. Now, if their vision goes down by a couple of lines, we'll start treating them. And we'll start doing some of these injections in the eye, which sounds terrible, but they're really not that bad. People tolerate them actually pretty well. Um, so protocol T is the main study that came out about four or five years ago on how we treat, on which medicines we use to treat, and if we should treat. And so um, it's something, uh, so there's three me- medicines basically that we use for this. There's Avastin, there's Lucentis, and there's Ilea. And there's the, not, there's the generic names too, but you, you don't need to know those. So Lucentis, Ilea, and Avastin. And so they compared all of these. And so you need to know that people that got these injections no matter which drug they got, they all saw better. So they helped. So they prolonged vision for, ev- for people that had diabetic retinopathy and macular edema. And so they're a good thing. They're a step above laser, which is what we used to do for, for diabetes, for this kind of disease, but we don't do anymore. Uh, we basically do these shots, and this is one of the reasons why. Um, so which medicine do we use? So it basically comes down to the dividing line of 2050 vision. So about halfway down the chart, if you will, um, if your vision was better than 2050, it didn't matter which drug you use. You could use any of them. And people really saw about the same with that. If their vision was worse than 2050, there was a winner and that winner was a uh, or ILEA. And that's the one where people actually did better. Um, and there's, I'm not going to go into the details of the study, but that's basically how it turned out. Um, and um, people that got um, Avastin or Lucentis, they did better, but not as well as ILEA. And so that kind of shows us how we need to treat people that have diabetic macular edema. The best way to treat it is to not get it. And how do we not get it? We control blood sugar. And so um, one of the caveats to the, for, that came from the DRCR was this, that people that had a better hemoglobin A1C actually saw better. And so they had a high hemoglobin A1C to begin with, and that's why they got this disease process. But in that range of high hemoglobin A1C, if it was a little bit lower, they ended up seeing better. And so what that means to me practically is when I see a patient and I say, we need to do shots, but you know what? You still need to control your blood sugars because you'll see better if you do. And so, That's one thing that I can tell folks, um, that it's still really important to control your sugars. Um, The other caveat that came out of the DRCR um, protocol T was this, is that vision is more important than OCT. So what what I mean by that is a lot of ophthalmologists, when they will just treat the OCT. So if you see swelling, you treat it. And that's kind of how the residents think. But that's not really, OCT can't replace vision. And so there are multiple factors that go into how a person sees that, ju- that it involves more than just the OCT. And so what that means to me is um, you can't treat just the OCT. You have to actually think a little bit of different reasons why you might need to do a shot or not, or not do a shot at the end of the day. Um, The other thing that kind of came out of the the DRCR was this, that younger people saw better than older people if they had uh, macular edema. Um, And if they had subretinal fluid, kind of what I showed you on that that first OCT, they actually responded better and they saw better. So if you don't do a treatment, it's a negative um, visual implication. But if you treat it, they actually do better. So that is actually kind of the end, but I want to leave you with this one point. that um, hemoglobin A1C, small differences in that number, but they can really have big ramifications. You can get uh, blindness from macular edema, you can have blindness from hemorrhage, you can have blindness from from attractional retinal detachment. There's other things that even that you can have blindness from. Small problems with a big effect. So we're gonna actually stop the eye talk right now, but I wanna give you the opportunity to ask questions before we go on. So that's an interesting thing and goes into our thinking behind what we do. So um, Avastin is actually a cancer medicine that was first developed for colon cancer. And a group out of Miami um, learned that it was really effective in treating ocular diseases that leaked, macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy. And so an, an Avastin shot usually costs between $500 and $800 for everything for the entire shot. The other medicines were specifically developed for use in the eye, Lucentis and Ilea. They usually cost about $2,000 to $2,500 per shot. Um, Interestingly enough, the same company makes Avastin that makes Lucentis, and so guess which one they want you to use. Um, And so that point is a great argument because if you watch those lines, so there's some graphs from the DRCR that I didn't put up there because they're a little uh, wonky, but the ILEA shot is up here with vision. The Avastin shot is, or line is here. So ILEA is better than Avastin at two years. But if you keep watching it, those lines actually get closer together. So that's the rationale behind some people that will use Avastin rather than ILEA, um, or continue to use Avastin. Because if it was just this is better than this, then great. But yeah, cost plays a role for sure. So other questions? Yeah, that's a question I can't answer, but um, I think for the eye in particular, I think it probably would not have an effect on the eye itself because of the sclera and the concentration levels in the blood, um, don't, they affect the eye concentration for sure, but not to a great degree. And this is why we can't just give drops um, to control diabetic retinopathy or why we can't give a pill Uh, to control these diseases because those, um, we can't get a high enough concentration in the eye without doing a shot. So I don't think it would have an effect on the eye pathology, but um, kidney disease, and and, you know, each tissue is specific in how it responds to hyperglycemia. So I think the tissue itself um, plays a role as to what pathology develops, whether it be nephrology or peripheral neuropathy. And so, yeah, good question. I don't have the answer to that question. Okay, so, For sure. So the of blood after to a mild degree, yeah. Um, but actually it's flowing the opposite way. So if you, and um, Paul can talk a little bit more about this, but um, um, aqueous flows from inside the eye to outside the eye through uh, episcleral vein, uh, flow. And so it's, we don't really get a lot of concentration the other way from blood in now, um, you know, through the ciliary body, that's what makes the aqueous, Um, you know, so it does have some degree of an effect, but not a huge degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're going to change topics a little bit and use what what we just talked about with an analogy to talk about some biblical principles. And so, um, so this is sort of the picture that we looked at, normal versus abnormal, a normal retina versus diabetic retinopathy. And so, um, let's see, I want to get down to this. Or or a small difference um, that makes a big effect. And you can see the effect right here. Well, I want to, there's a couple of groups in the Bible that, uh, groups of people, where we see a big difference. And we can look at the picture of them and see that big difference, obviously. And then we're going to try to figure out why that difference happened. And so the groups that I'm thinking about are actually the apostles, and so the disciples. And, um, and that difference becomes plainly obvious. And so I want to look at a couple of texts. Um, let's see. Yeah. So we're going to look at Luke 6, 12 through 16. Now, this text um, happens early in Jesus's ministry. Um, so he was about to give the Sermon on the Mount. Um, he had already been baptized and tempted. He had started his ministry, um, and he had called men to follow him, and they were, they were following him. But this is the text where he was actually choosing apostles, and these were the people that would start his church. Um, And there were 12 of them, interestingly enough, just like the 12 patriarchs. Um, So that's an interesting thing, sort of a reconstitution of Israel, if you will. But he had something special in mind of them. You can't really tell what they're like in this particular passage, but we'll go back and and try to figure out what they were like. The comparison that we're going to look at is in Acts 3. And... um, And the story is in Acts 3, 1 through 9. It actually goes through the entire um, chapter of Acts and into the fourth chapter of Acts. But this is the crux of it, and I'll just read it to you quickly. This is part of it. Now, it came to pass in those days that he went out—oh, sorry— Peter and John went to the temple, one after another, to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day, he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the Beautiful Gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, Look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver and gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Christ, of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the, the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened, and he jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. So this picture of the disciples here is, I asked every, everybody at church, how would you describe them? So they're preaching, if you read the entire story in chapter 3 and 4, they're preaching Jesus powerfully. They're leading people to Jesus and they're healing people miraculously. So they're strong, they're influential, and they're unafraid. And you see them here, sort of men of faith. Um, So let's look back then and kind of dissect what these people looked like back in Luke's gospel, Um, if we can figure out from that passage what they were like there. And so, um, so we'll just read the first part of this, this part in Luke. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer um, to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12 whom he named apostles. So in these, in this, what we see first is that Jesus went to pray. He prayed all night for these people, um, and before he chose his disciples, he spent some extra time in prayer, and this is a common thing that we see with Jesus, right? He's always going off by himself to pray and to spend time with God. And I just think about that, and he, it says he prayed all night. And rhetorically, I can ask the question, have any of us prayed all night, or have we prayed all night? What does that actually look like to us when we think about that much prayer? Um, it's probably not the typical kind of prayer that I think of. Sometimes my prayers kind of turn into selfishness, right? Jesus, I need this. God, I need this. I need you to do this in my life. I want you to do this. I need that. Thank you for doing this, but I actually need this. And so it's not—it's less communication and more a one-way dialogue. So I looked up a couple of quotes from this, from one of my uh, an author that I really like, and this—he's A.W. Tozer. So he lived um, in the early um, 20th century. Um, but he had some quotes that I thought were interesting and helpful. In our fast-paced life, we have no time for contemplation. We have no time to answer God when he calls. And I can say that that's true of my devotional life sometimes. Where there's a lot of stuff happening in life. And sometimes I don't have time to wait and allow God to answer me. Um, I don't sit silently trying to listen to what he has to say to me through his word or through his spirit. Another quote, I think that some of the greatest prayer is prayer where you don't say one single word or ask for anything. You know, sometimes, um, I'm actually not very good with names. Um, We think of patients that we see, and it's interesting. I can imagine what their eye looks like, and I can remember their case based upon what their eyes, but I have no idea what their name is. And so that happens to me all the time. And so, um, but what's helpful to me is when I'm praying, if I'm praying for somebody to just imagine their face rather than actually their name. And I think that God hears that. And actually, um, C.S. Lewis talks about that some. Um, true prayer cannot be imitated, nor can it be learned from someone else. It needs to be experienced. We can describe what it's about, but it really needs to be experienced. Prayer at its holiest moment is the entering into God where miracles seem tame by comparison. When we pray, when our devotional life has reached that, and we experience God in those moments, but miracles seem like little things in comparison. That's a devotional life. And so, um, so I have stumbled also a, a, across a letter that was written by a fellow named Art Lindsley. And he was writing about C.S. Lewis and C.S. Lewis's prayer life. And he said the key to prayer for Lewis was the struggle of getting the real, here it is, the real I in touch with the reality of God. Prayer is saying, may it be the real I who speaks, may it be the real thou that I speak to. God is the great iconoclast. I had to look up what that word meant. But iconoclast is when, is destroying our preconceived notions. If we feel that we understand what God is or what God's about, we really don't. Because if we understood God, we would be God. So God is bigger than our, than our conceptions. And sometimes he needs to destroy what those conceptions to communicate with us. Um, and he needs to destroy what we think about ourselves sometimes, and when we do that, we can move toward real and true spirituality. Mrs. White says this. Now, we think about the disciples here at this story, and he's praying for them, and, and they're sound asleep. Mrs. White has this to say about this. His heart yearned over these chosen ones. Alone upon a mountain near the Sea of Galilee, he spent the entire night in prayer for them while they were sleeping at the foot of a mountain. And I think that um, his, I think what he was doing, praying for them, was probably different than what we think of prayer. I think there was a lot less of praying about who he was going to pick and praying for the people, for those apostles, because he knew them. He knew what kind of people they were. He knew what they were going to face. He knew all of those things, the responsibilities that they were going to have, and he knew that they were going to struggle. And so he labored over them and we think about the word as he's choosing apostles. Um, so do you know what the, I had to look up the definition of what an apostle is. Um, and it was interesting. I like this definition the best. An ambassador of the gospel. An ambassador of the good news. Officially a commissioner of Christ. And I like to think of it this way too. Apostle, um, in, in Australia, when you go to mail something to someone, here we put it in the mail. In Australia, Australia they call it posting it, so you post a letter. And so that's the middle of this word. So it's kind of like Jesus is sending us these messengers to form his church. That's what Apostle was really all about. Okay, so who were these guys that he was sending? Simon Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, all of these guys Who were these guys? So fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were fishermen. Levi Matthew was a tax collector. Simon was a zealot. Judas was a thief and an embezzler. But basically, these were normal guys. Um, They had regular jobs. They were trying to survive. uh, Let's see. They were trying to just survive the world in which they were in. They were spiritual people, sort of. They were part of Israel, so their understanding of spirituality, though, was all tied up into these political aspirations, this idea of nationalism where Rome would be um, overthrown and and, and, Israel, and Israel would be the leader again. It was all tied up in that, and, um, and it sort of differed from this personal spirituality. Um, so as individuals, they had issues. James and John were the th- sons of thunder. John, the beloved disciple, was easily arousable. He became indignant and combative. Peter and Andrew, the brothers, were impetuous. Um, they had a violent temper. Um, Philip was slow t- to come around to his faith. He was the first disciple called. Um, but even when uh, after Jesus had been announced as the son of God, he still called him Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph, even after God had announced that he was his son. Philip also, um, in an amazing lack of faith, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and if you have known me, you have known my father as well. Philip answered him and said, Lord, show us the father, and it is sufficient for us. Well, he had been with him for three years at that point. Didn't he kind of get it already? He didn't um so that's that's philip judas is another case and he's the only one that asked to be a part of this group jesus didn't bring him in and he didn't push him away he simply told him the truth he said he said judas the son of man has no place to lay his head he knew that judas was looking for um, gain in the political in jesus's political kingdom he wanted to be at a high level and he just was honest with him and said look This is a way of poverty. You're not going to have a place to live. Are you really wanting that? Um, It kind of left it up to Judas. Judas. But despite Jesus knowing what what Judas would do, he still fed him. He still poured into him and tried to get him to come around to be a part of his kingdom. Jesus never gives up. Even if people that he knows will reject him eventually, he still tries continually. So these were normal men with normal problems. Levi Matthew, a lying, cheating tax collector, Simon the zealot, Peter, an impulsive, quick to anger. Judas was mean-spirited. Thomas was true-hearted yet timid and fearful. Philip was slow of heart. So when we look at this picture of these guys here, as they were being called to apostles, and then we see the example in Acts of what they were, these powerful men of faith were doing miracles. There's an obvious difference between the two. Well, what's the difference? What happened to them that made the difference? Well, we get the answer in Acts 4 at the end of the story. And you know the story that Peter's giving this sermon to the Sanhedrin. um, And he says, um, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. He's talking to them, rulers and elders of our people. Are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he is healed? Let me clearly state to you all that it was Jesus of Nazareth, who you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures as the stone that the builders rejected and has now become the cornerstone. God has given no other name under heaven by which which he must be saved. The members of the council were amazed. They could see that these were, were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. And that's the answer. They had been with Jesus. And that's what changed them to these weak, fallen people who had obvious issues into these powerful apostles um, who would change the world. So a small difference, spending time with Jesus, but huge consequences. So what did Jesus, what with being, what being with Jesus made all these changes? What, what happened to the people? Um, and one thing is this. Jesus knew who the apostles were. He knew their past intimately. He knew every sin, every fault, every character. He knew their present. He knew their doubts that they had. He knew their future. He knew every obstacle that would pop up, and yet he still called them. He knew that some of them would reject him, yet he still called them. That is love, to still call people that are going to reject you. It's kind of like, have you ever bought a lemon? a a car that didn't really work out so well for you. Um, You bought it, and it turned out to just break down every single moment. And so at the end of that, you thought, man, why did I buy that car? That's a terrible car. And yet, so you have to wonder, did Jesus have buyer's remorse, or did he think that he had bought a lemon when he got these guys, when he called them in? Not at all, right? Right. because he knew who they were. He knew what they would end up to be and he knew about them already. So he had no regrets, no buyer's remorse about this. And I would say that Jesus doesn't call just perfect people. He doesn't call people, put together people. He doesn't call people that have all the time in the world. He doesn't call people that have studied theology their whole life. He calls everybody to have a job. And what he does was is when he calls them and he gives them the job, He changes them as they do the job. It's called transformation. Habits change, personality changes, ideas change, everything changes. If we don't want to change, then we really shouldn't follow Jesus because he is going to change us. It's called transformation. And so um, number two is Jesus stayed with the disciples, and the disciples stayed with him. It's kind of a given that the disciples... um, that Jesus was going to stay with the disciples, because he never leaves us nor forsakes us. But the, the disciples, even though they were reproved sometimes, they stuck with Jesus. In fact, uh, Jesus asked Peter, are you going to leave me too? And he says, but where else would I go? He's got no one else to follow. Um, so the last one, before we kind of get to the end, is Jesus is the center. Jesus calls a diversity of people. All of these were different people from different walks of life that came together. But in Christ, they came in unity. Mrs. White has this. They would have their tests, their grievances, their differences of opinion, but while Christ was abiding in the heart, there could be no dissension. His love would lead to love for one another. The lessons of the master would lead to the harmonizing of all differences. Bringing the disciples into unity till they would be of one mind. So harmonizing. Harmonizing is what kind of word? Action. It's a musical term, right? How do we get harmony? Do we all sing the same note when you make harmony? Have you ever have you I want to um, have you ever heard harmony that will just bring you to tears, that will just cause such an emotional response? I had that happen a few weeks ago. This is, a confer- this is a concert that I got to go to at UK, and my daughter, my youngest daughter, was fortunate enough to sing with it. So it's UK's choral department, um, their select choir, and then my daughter's high school and their select choir, and they gave a concert together. And I just played just a short clip of this song that kind of brought me to tears as I was listening to it. So there's a couple of reasons that that brought me to tears when I heard it. One, I was real super proud of, of Sammy to get to sing um, in that choir. But two was, if you realize the situation, so this is at the University of Kentucky, a public institution. But there are all sorts of rules about what you can say, what you can talk about, what you can signs that you can put up, there's rules for everything. Um, and I'll talk about that a little bit in a moment about what I can do in my office, but here, these choir is singing about the grace of God. And that trans—it transforms everybody. It goes across barriers. And yet they were singing that at a public institution where, where in any other way, they wouldn't be able to talk about the love of God. And so I just thought that that was an amazing thing that music does. And... Um, and sort of brings us together. You know, we, we, this time in which we live in now, we're divided so many ways. The church is divided. Christians are divided. Uh, we're divided politically. Um, how we respond to the virus, all of these things are divisive. But if we make Jesus at the center, he changes us and he brings us together in ways that are not possible any other way. It really is a miracle. And I think that if we put Jesus at the center, He'll get through with that with all of us. So I want to, um, Jesus calls humans, he calls us to give the gospel, not angels. Um, it's a miracle, we must be born again. Even though these people spent three years with Jesus, they, um, um, they still denied him, they still slept through his prayer, they still um, ran away um, when Jesus was arrested. All of that happened even though after three years. But when they experienced Jesus, after he was glorified, after he was raised from the dead, they were changed, and they started the process to become these people. When Mary heard um, Jesus say her name, Mary, immediately she runs off, and she's the first gospel evangelist to tell the disciples all about that. When when the disciples were walking back for the road to on the road to Emmaus, and, the and Jesus opens up the scriptures to them, they were changed. And suddenly they get to their destination and they want to turn and run back to tell the other disciples about what's happened to them. When Peter gets reinstated when they're eating fish on the beach and, and Jesus puts him back um, to an apostle form, he is changed and he becomes this person who can do miracles, who can, his, he is changed forever. It's a miracle when that happens. So what can we learn about this in our practices, about what we do in our jobs for telling people about Jesus? So what I would say is the main point and the only point from this is be with Jesus, be with Jesus, be with Jesus, because he will change you and enable you to share Jesus in your practice. Um, And so, um, Peter really had nothing to give. He had, didn't have any money. He didn't have anything to give to the lame man. All he had to give him was was Jesus. And if he hadn't been with Jesus, he would absolutely have nothing to give. Um, let's see. Uh, and this is a this is a verse that um, is just amazing to me. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, and I am an earthen vessel. I am fallen. I am weak. I am unable to do things, but when we spend time with Jesus, he gives us the power of God, and so when we testify of him, we give the glory to him, and he actually makes things happen. So I love the fact of um, um, this idea that has come from Amen, and Brad talked about it last night, about making your waiting room um, a witnessing opportunity. Um, I think that's amazing, And, and the idea that he talked about today um, Calvin did about um, the little book section uh, about things that we can give away um, I hear all the AAO the Academy w- um, videos and in the offices that I met they're always playing and giving ophthalmology information wouldn't that be great if we had those same clips to give an, an advent uh, an Adventist or a Christian worldview to be able to give give those let me tell you a little bit about my practice situation so for the most part, retina is a, is a referral practice. Um, I get most of my patients from other ophthalmologists or optometrists, a few from primary care doctors, very few people here and just come in on their own. They're all referred from, from other uh, practitioners. And in fact, most of the time, I'm seeing patients in other doctors' offices. So I have no control over what happens in that office. Um, In my university practice, I'm one of six retina providers and one of 30 ocular providers in total. And so my ability to change what happens in that waiting room is limited. But let me tell you that God has provided ways in which I can share him to patients. And I'll just want to tell you about that a little bit. Um, The word is relationships. Um, we serve a God of relationships. God in and of himself is in a relationship. Um, um, and so he gives us relationships to be able to share with. One of the relationships that I have is with a friend, a peer, or a colleague, you could call him, um, we have lots of people here. I know that Advent, Adventism is a small community and ophthalmology is a small community. So I'm gonna call him John. Um, John has a really stressful job. Um, His job is a little different than mine, he is an ophthalmologist. He has lots of family pressures. Um, He has inherited and cultivated weaknesses in his life. He has an atheist worldview, mostly because of wrong theology taught from churches or other Christians that have been presented to him. And because of all of these pressures, probably five to seven years ago, he fell into the world of dependency, and it became to get worse and worse for him. And in his words, he was spiraling out of control. His wife came to me, asking for uh, help a few years ago, and she feared for his life, and rightly so. um, To be honest, we went. Our kids used to ride horses together, and on a Sunday morning, we showed up at at this horse venue, and um, he smelled of alcohol. He acted drunk, and it was ten o'clock on a Sunday morning. And I said, something is wrong here, and so. so, I agreed to help, and so, um, so an intervention happened, and he went for inpatient help, and today he is better. Um, he's still serving in the, in the role that he was serving then, um, and I have gotten to walk that process with him. He's able to see that there is a power outside of himself that can help him. Now, has he been baptized, and has he studied and become an Adventist? No, he is not. Um, But he is able to see that there is a power outside of that. And he taps into that through long nature walks um, uh, in the woods. He does have the ministry of healing in his possession. And my prayer is that someday he reads that that book. Um, But he's not a believer yet. But God is working on him. He has taken baby steps in that process. That's one relationship. The other relationships are these. And I'll be really quick about summarizing this. Um, part of my job is teaching fellows and residents. And so I get to um, actually carpool with them to our outlying clinic. So we get to ride together for a couple of hours each day. Um, and so we get to talk about a lot of different things, just shooting the breeze. A lot of times we do teaching, we talk about ophthalmology, but a lot of times we just talk about life. And so over the last 20 years, I've had literally hundreds of relationships with fellows and residents where we get to talk about different things. Um, relationships in which I can try to understand them and give them a picture of Jesus my Jesus, the Jesus who I spend time with every day and I get to, and I get to tell them about him there's the Muslim, um, let me tell you there are easy connections to be made with Muslims um, both of us hate pepperoni and none of us will ever eat it and so we bonded over that moment um, but he likes to talk about Jesus too because they recognize Jesus and so we can draw on that commonality there's also the Mormon group that has come through. And those are fun talks because we have a lot in common with Mormons too. And so, um, and they're really good people and, they, and, and, and they're really all about their families. But then I can share about the differences that we have too. And then there's the Hindu that, that came through and she's awesome, um, a really fun girl. And I got to share the truth about the one God and about Jesus and that he loves her. And then there's the special case. And I'll call him... Um, I'll call him R. Um, You see, because R went to Monterey Bay Academy, um, and then he went to PUC. Um, And somehow, he lost his way in that journey um, and ended up at a different um, medical school. Um, And uh, on that way, he rejected God, and he certainly rejected Adventism. And at that point, when he was dropped into my lap, he was an avowed atheist and a secularist. But R. couldn't get away from God, could he? Because, out of, because God saw fit to manipulate the match, manipulate interviews and different lists, and made it possible to place him on my service. You have to know that there aren't very many Seventh-day Adventist retina specialists in fellowship programs at secular universities. I'm a small number. And yet Ryan R. got dropped in my lap as on my service. And so we talked about a, lo- a lot of things and he never admitted until one day he came to my house and I picked him up and he came in the house and we were eating breakfast and there were stripples and veggie links on the table. And he's like, hey, I remember those. Can I have one of those? And so instantly I knew what had happened. And so we started to talk and he relayed the story to me about what happened. And so again, I don't have a great story about a baptism to tell you right now, and I wish that I did. But I got to spend two years with Ryan and share with him. And he came to church. Um, he came to church one time with me at the end of his fellowship. And we had dinner together in New York a few weeks ago. And Dion and I got to share part of our journey with Jesus with him. And so he's not there yet, but God is working on him. God is working on his heart. And so, um, let's see. Yeah, and, and my, my fellow today, actually, we were talking this morning. There was a Mac on RD that came in this morning, and we talked about that. But she knew I was here, she was, so she was asking about my talk. And she asked what I was talking about. And so I got to share with her about what I was going to tell you and share text with her about that. And so God, no matter our practice situation, God gives us opportunities to share him. It might be with patients. It might be with trainees. It might be with a plethora of people giving literature out. But he gives us opportunities. And if we are faithful to him and spend time with him, we have something to share to other people. Let's say a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to share and for the opportunity that you give each of us to share you lord we need to be about your about your business because time is short and lord you don't give up on anyone you are always about even though the people that will reject you you still give them every opportunity up until the last moment to say yes and that's what you're doing now giving people the opportunity and if you Give them, if you're all about that, how can we do any less? Help us to be about that as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.